Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to Close Reads. I'm your host, David Kern. Wait, no, this is Tim McIntosh, and I am joined by Matt Bianco. Matt, we're operating without David today. I know. it's. I feel uh, naked, but that's not the right I know. way to describe it. Our brother is um, absent. What is he? I mean, he just kind of like just decided, you know, we were grown up enough to just kind of do the show on our own. I, I had, I had thought that might be it. And I guess I was kind of hoping that that's what it was, but then he said, because neither of us would tell him which one of us loved him more. He, oh. so he's abandoning his, um, his dictatorship over the show and is leaving us. And is, is he outside on the blasted heath in a raging storm, you know, decrying, nature's assault on him is that what's going on for david well he's still surrounded by his 100 knights so okay okay so he's got a he still has to plummet into madness a little bit farther Um, yes right so we're in listeners we're now um entering into act three of king lear and Matt and I were just making a bunch of like really clever references <laughs> to the action <laughs> that is going to happen so in clever, um, so clever. Act Three. <laughs> um, I thought Matt that maybe we could kind of begin with a little conclusion about what happened in Act Two, and then describe the action of Act Three before we really dive into what's happening in this play. Um, do you want to try to summarize Act Two? You want me to do it? Well, the only the, I could probably do it in, in just a sentence. Yeah. The daughters who are so awful, they deserve to have their wombs cursed, <laughs> have passed their father out of doors in the midst of a raging storm. Uh huh. With no protection. And they've taken away his knights. He has no retinue anymore. No retinue, no cover, nothing in the midst of a storm. So. Um, in Act Three, we kind of meet Lear with K 
Kent, his loyal servant with uh, the clown, the fool, his loyal fool, <clears throat> and they're out on the blasted heath. Act three, scene two, which I'm sure we're going to spend some time on, is Lear raging against the thunderstorm um, while upon a blasted heath. Uh, they meet soon thereafter poor Tom, who we know, the audience knows, is Edgar, the um, son of Gloucester. Gloucester is afraid that Edgar has betrayed him, is trying to undermine him, but he's gotten all this information from the bad brother, the bastard brother, Edmund. Um, Gloucester, after we meet Tom, we return to Gloucester's castle, and Gloucester is meeting with the two daughters, the bad daughters, Goneril and Reagan and their husbands, and one of the most awful scenes in all of Shakespeare, maybe the worst, the sisters and the husband, or one of the husbands, decides that the penalty for Gloucester's perceived disloyalty is the loss of his eyes. And so on stage, we see them gouge out Gloucester's eyes, which when we get there, I'd like to talk a little bit about how theater companies actually produce this scene, because how do you do that? That's not an easy stage direction to fulfill the DIing of a character. Something that would not even have taken place on stage in a Greek tragedy, uh -huh. right? Uh-huh, right, right. They put it behind doors in Oedipus Rex. Oedipus um, gouges out his own eyes, but we don't get to see it thankfully we don't get to see it but right. we do get to see it regretfully in shakespeare's play um and the conclusion of act three is the meeting between uh gloucester kind of escapes at the very conclusion but before that we are with um poor tom lear kent and the fool in a kind of makeshift hovel those three, those four, um, finding refuge from the storm. So for me, Matt, so that's the action of act three. For me, it feels like Shakespeare put the apocalypse in the middle of his play. Hmm. Yeah. That's an interesting, everything comes unhinged. Right. Everything just is completely unhinged. Even, even the, um, the conversation between the four characters in act three, gosh, it's probably scene five. It's, it's just madness. It's so, I mean, Shakespeare's never easy to follow. It always, always requires effort from a reader. Um, but this is especially difficult because the conversation is so, unhinged it strikes me as this sort of i wonder what you think a kind of just a sort of poetic incarnation of mutual insanity between tom and lear mm -hmm. yeah that's 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 good because my I, I have some interest in trying to decipher the sanity or the lack of sanity, the insanity of the different characters and, and what is that insanity? How real is it for each of them? You know? Yeah. And then what do we mean by real? 
<laughs> and I don't mean so, that in the um, deepest metaphysical sense. I really just mean like, is there a way that we can be insane and it not be the same as what we think of as an insane person? Does that make so, sense? So, um, yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, so what do you think? Uh, for Edgar, is it straight up mental incapacity or is something else happening that drives his insanity? Well, or is he acting? Or is he acting? Right. That's the tricky part is I don't know. I don't know when somebody's act like Edgar is there disguised. His father is, uh, is on the scene or comes into the scene quickly mm-hmm. soon after. And, and I don't, I don't think when he flees, he doesn't flee. If I remember correctly, he doesn't flee with the intent of trying to win his father back. He flees to, for survival's sake. Save his life, right. But then his father comes on the scene. So then is is the insanity an act in order to keep up the disguise so that his father doesn't recognize him and kill him? Is the insanity an act in such a way that it that it's testing the father to see if he can yeah. if he can reconcile with him? Or is it legitimate? madness well okay uh-huh. so in and in, in act three scene four there is an interesting line um line 169 so act four is kind of a long or scene scene four is kind of an act mm-hmm. long scene line 169 this is gloucester speaking and he says um the grief hath crazed my wits and then there's a similar line in scene six where he said, scene six, 106, where he says, and this time it's Edgar speaking. And Edgar says, okay. who will, oh, well, this isn't, it's, it's related. It's not, he's not saying the same thing, but he says, who alone suffers, suffers most in the mind, leaving free things and happy shows mm-hmm. behind. But then the mind much sufferance doth or skip when grief hath mates and bearing fellowship. So, mm-hmm. so there's a sense in which, which there's, you know, Gloucester seems to think that grief itself causes us to go mad. Mm-hmm. Then, then Edgar adds to that a couple scenes later that, that so- solitude coupled with grief causes even more madness, more suffering of the mind, right? Yeah. So, so in that sense, the insanity could be real in that he's suffering in the mind because he, he actually is in a situation. Well, he and Lear both are in situations where they're alone and then they're suffering one at the hands of his father, the other at the hands of his daughters. His father and brother versus his daughters. So then that, 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 that abandonment coupled with, uh, with so then that, which leads to solitude coupled with the grief could be, crazing their wits right and so then the sanity right insanity could be real in that sense but then if it if that's the cause of it then it doesn't have to be sanity it does sorry it doesn't have to be an insanity that is permanent so real but not permanent if if i'm making a distinction between the kinds of being if it being real 
because if the insanity is truly a a physiological derangement of the brain right that's something presumably we you know edgar couldn't come back from and lear couldn't come back from but i I agree with what you're saying the cause or even maybe the motive is something other for edgar something other than a physiological breakdown now i'm not sure that lear and i didn't hear you say this but I, i tend to think Lear's insanity might have to do with like actual cognitive dysfunction. He's he's an old man. He's creeping towards senility. Um, but I, for me, even Lear's insanity is not merely physiological. It is the things that you named. It's isolation. It's his perceived slight or mistreatment at the hands of Goneril and Reagan. But also for me, underlying both of those is his own mistreatment of his beloved daughter, Cordelia. Because mm-hmm. on, on the blasted heath in both scene two and scene five, Lear keeps going back to his daughters. He keeps, they just kind of bubble up in this stew of insanity, this kind of like, um, boiling soup of words bubbling up kind of from, as it is, if it were from his subconscious are those names, Goneril, Reagan, Cordelia, my daughters, they're, they're plaguing him and his action with Cordelia is, seems to be plaguing him. But that being said, um, What's what's your hunch about what it is that's driving Edgar's insanity? If you were, you know, if you had to play this role, if you're going to interpret this role, what's your hunch about why he's so deranged here? So on the on the on on the one hand, I think just taking those couple of passages that I read about grief, it could be that he's grieving that his father has misinterpreted him, that his brother has, you know, apparently turned on him and that he's, that his life is in danger at the hands of his father. Um, And so he's, he's not, I mean, he's in exile, but like self-imposed as, you know, to avoid death. And so he's alone. And then he's, he's in this hovel, he's in the, in the midst of this storm and he's been, you know, he's essentially been abandoned by his family. And then I, and so then all of that grief is, well, so I don't know if I'll be able to find it quickly enough, but there's another passage where Lear is thinking about his daughters again. This is in act three, scene four. Uh, mm-hmm. around 22 or 23. And he says, Oh, Reagan, Goneril, your old kind father, whose frank heart gave all, Oh, that way madness lies. Let me shun that. No more of that. Um, uh-huh. And there's this, this sense, you know, that if we, that in fact, we, I've heard that line be used in counseling people, right? That way madness lies. Don't like the, what if questions, right? Like, what if I'd done this differently? You know, would, 
would this would this have been different and yeah. and then and then you know you're you you get told in that way madness lies don't like we we go in in that in those moments of grief and solitude we're transported or we're we become internally focused in our, in our minds and we start asking all these what if questions and we think about all these different things and then that is the way of madness right we we drive ourselves uh-huh. mad through that process so on the one hand i think that it's probably that but i'm curious if on a on a closer reading of see the close i did there close close reading nicely done nicely done a little plug a little plug um on a closer reading of his lines his being um toms or or, or mm-hmm. Edmonds, Edgar, edgar's. edgar's thank you um if there are some hidden hidden clues in the statements that he makes that i don't get because of the because of the foreignness of the of the english and the foreignness of the you know colloquialisms yeah foreign to me that that i don't get them but i wonder if there's something in them where he is saying things in a way that's kind of testing that's kind of testing his father when his father's around um and kind of communicating that that he's saner than he appears yeah because there are some asides where he doesn't sound crazy at all right so like there's one passage um where kent says to lear he says oh pity sir where is the patience now that you so oft have boasted to retain and then edgar turns aside and says my tears begin to take his part so much they mar my counterfeiting and that's that's um, Act Three, Scene Six, Line Sixty, Fifty Nine and Sixty for Edgar. And so there, there, there's there seems to be some indication where the, through the aside that he's not like is the counterfeiting referring to his madness? Um, I, I I don't know. It, in in a weird way, can he both be mad from the grief, but also not mad? Like it's part right. of his disguise. But then, well, people say that about Hamlet, right? Yeah. You know, was Hamlet actually mad or was he faking it? Because he said he was going to mm-hmm. fake it, right? And then, then he's mad. But then, but then sometimes you get people say that that you know maybe it's both. Maybe he he began faking it, uh, you know, acting. But then, but then you know through that through that process of imitation or or through, of acting, you begin becoming that um, that kind of person. That's what. Uh, just as a weird side note that's what my mom's argument was when i was a little kid that's why my mom told me i couldn't play dungeons and dragons because if i acted like <laughs> witches i would become one anyways i don't know i don't know why that popped in my head <laughs> i i that's my reading of hamlet hamlet very clearly declares at the end of act one um i will put on an antic disposition right and he just tells his friend, I'm going to do this. But then in Acts 3 and 4, boy, it sure seems like he's actually losing it a little bit. And I think we see the same thing with Tom, Edgar. We see him say, I'm going to take on this disguise. Yeah. Then he, especially in the act that we just read, is 
it seems like he's genuinely lost it. But then, just like you said, there are these flashes of genuine insight where he seems like he is in his right mind and he observes something, says something that is, is maybe even more insightful than had he had his right mind. Right. I, I right. keep, I, it's, I think hopefully we're not referring too much to a different text, Hamlet, but I do think that because madness plays such a prominent role in that play and in this play, the two hopefully can instruct each other. Um, there's a scene, remember, where Ophelia loses her mind. Her father has been killed. Hamlet has destroyed her heart, and he's then been exiled. Uh, her brother returns from abroad, and he discovers Ophelia, Hamlet's former girlfriend, has gone in, she's gone crazy. And there's this really chilling scene where Ophelia is with the king, uncle to Hamlet, murderer of Hamlet's father, and she's giving him flowers. And she's also indicting the king in some way. She seems to know somehow that he had a hand in the killing of the king. And Laertes, her brother, says, I wish you could find the line, something to the effect of, in madness, she speaks the truth. Whoa. I see that same thing happening with Edgar. Yeah. In madness, whether feigned or put on or partial, in madness, he speaks the truth. And I see the same thing from Lear. In madness, he speaks the truth. And just to carry it one step further, I mean, the role of the, of the fool all throughout this play is he's constantly speaking the truth, not in madness, but in jest. And there's something about that sort of, um, I don't know what to call it, Matt, the, the sort of indirection, the kind of irrational indirection of those characters can speak with a, in their indirection, directness that capable, sane characters cannot seem to do. Yeah, that, so in, in, in Eastern Orthodoxy, there's something similar to that, that they call them, they call it, it's like, it's almost like an office. They call it, they call the person a, a fool for Christ taken from uh -huh, a holy that, fool. Yeah. Taking that phrase from scripture, but, but it refers to a certain person who, who, who appears to be very, very mad. Um, and, and kind of separated from the community because of that. But then is the, is that person that is, that is able to speak very, very powerful spiritual truths to the community and do it very straightforward, you know, or very um, pointedly and, 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 you know, gets away with it in, um, in, in one sense gets away with it because of their madness, because they're, they are a fool, but, uh -huh. but also doesn't get away with it because, you know, depending on who it, who it has been and which point in place in time, um, you know, sometimes gets, gets beaten for it. And yet they don't care. Yes. Right. They, they, right. they accept that they accept those kinds of pen penalties or punishments from this community because, you know, being the fool and, and, and being able to speak 
truth to the community is more important than, you know, their, their flesh. So right, it's interesting that that, that madness and truth telling seem to have a, a very um, interesting connection in, in these different, you know, settings. I have a friend named Seth. Seth has Down syndrome. And he's just such a delightful guy. And I'm convinced, and I've talked to his parents a little bit about this, Seth is a world-class mimic. In other words, he, with his family and with his friends, he listens, he listens, and then you hear him starting to repeat phrases that they use. And oftentimes I think he doesn't quite, he doesn't quite use the phrases and the content that they use (laughs) with great accuracy. It's always just a little bit like the kind of bricks of speech are a little bit askew. They don't quite stack up. Right. Hmm. But you can pull his meaning out. Seth will say some of the most profound things and he has no concept of like the profundity of what he's saying. He's somehow, I think what is happening, he's sort of like distilled the emotional um, energy behind what he hears from his family members or what he hears from his friends. He can somehow on like almost like a primal level, just distill the emotional energy of what they say and he recognizes, oh, that thing that they just said, they don't know how they're not saying it with a great amount of force or passion or fire, but somehow he knows that it's really important things that are being said. <laughs> and then he'll um, be in a different context and he will repeat the things that were said with his, among, from his family. And he'll say them in a different content uh, context, and they're just so loaded. It kind of makes you feel so awkward to hear these things. Like, um, oh gosh, I'm trying to think of an example without like being too on the nose. No, I'll, I'll just skip over that. But I wonder <laughs> if Seth's relationship to him, mean, because I'm thinking about like um, indicting someone, yeah, or just better than perhaps I, yourself. <laughs> I, yeah, right, right, right. No, I've wondered often. I thought. Man, if he can do this with his friends and with his family, he surely does it with me also. And I would all, I would love to hear like, what are the things that stand out to him about the things that I say? Cause I have a feeling he knows better than I do mm. what those really important, like vibrant issues are for me. And I think that's part of what we see in this play and in Hamlet that there's a kind of distillation in madness that they, that they recognize even in their madness, that something very, very potent is happening beneath all of these words. And it bubbles up in Lear and in the uh, poor Tom, it bubbles up and it furthers these, it kind of heightens the dramatic tension of these scenes because we hear what is really driving the characters below the surface. Yeah. 
Yeah. I, well, and that, that's why, um, you know, that's one of the reasons why from the beginning I've, I've kind of honed in on, or I've tried to want it, wanted to hone in on the fool, you know, what the fool says, because, um, you know, because of the fool seems to be one of the characters and, and, and I think now you're helping me to see why, um, the fool seems to be one of those carrier characters that is a trustworthy testimony. Yeah. Um, whereas I'm not, you know, I'm not sure of the others as we've discussed, um, at length and especially the daughters. Um, and, yeah. and that one guy, uh, he lost his name. Gonzalez, not Gonzalez. Edmund. No, her servant. Oh, 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 Oswald. Oswald. Um, but the, uh, but then, but now these characters in their madness might be, might be becoming more truthful, uh, more truthful testimonies of themselves even or of those around them right so mm-hmm. so we can add to the fool i think kent is is relatively trustworthy as well but yeah um the fool but now now edgar and perhaps it sounded like you you alluded to this or, or said it in passing earlier but even lear at this point in his madness um yeah. might be starting to say things that are truer than or more revealing um more more intimately honest than before right yeah in in some ways here this is the difficulty right is that in some ways anytime we're speaking whether there's whether there are other people listening or not i mean besides the person we're speaking to but even to ourselves actually we're, we're always we're always telling the story in a way even if even if it's to ourselves we're always telling the story in a way that puts ourselves in the best light. Yeah. Right. 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 So, so when I, when I, when I run through a conversation or, or some, something that happened earlier in the day to myself, just in my mind, right. Driving down the road, thinking about what happened at lunch um, or in some conversation, especially if there's some sort of conflict involved with it. I, I even tell myself like, yeah, you handled that right. Yeah, you said the right thing there. Or or you could have said uh-huh. this other thing better, but but not like you were you were at fault for not, you know, for saying it the way you did. I don't I don't typically uh-huh. maybe this is just a Matt Bianco thing and nobody else does this, but I I always seem to it be is not myself. just a Matt Bianco thing. I'm always defending you, you myself. You always just what? Defend myself. Uh-huh. I always put myself in the best light when I'm telling a story, but in their madness, maybe that changes. Maybe in his madness, Lear can be more. And I think that's what I mean when I say more intimately honest, like he might be honest about what he's saying before, but he's he's still saying it with that twist, that spin of Uh I'm putting it in the best. I'm still trying to put myself in the best light to my, as far Mm -hmm. as I, I understand the best light, but in his madness now, is there a willingness to say, to say it, and be a little bit more with, 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 without so much of that twist spin. Right. Right. So now it's like Fox news is saying it in the no spin zone. Whereas before yeah. it was like, you know, somebody else was saying, <laughs> I, I mean, the thing that you're describing, of course, you know, that you're not alone in that. I, I noticed for myself the way, I mean, even I'm going to be like very like honest on the air. I'm sort of an unemployed writer at present. 
And it's kind of the reality of my situation. Um, and I'm unemployed, not because I got fired, but because I, I left the place. Um, but if you just, if you just kind of look at my life circumstances, sometimes I'm like, what, what am I doing? But when I tell other people what I'm doing, oh, it sounds like, I mean, I've just got like this really crisp, concise plan and I'm pursuing it. <laughs> but like with my friends, with my family, I'm kind of like, man, I am kind of groping right now about what exactly it is that I'm doing. And I don't know if it's going to turn out the way that I hope it's going to turn out. But I notice, and I kind of chastise myself sometimes, like the way that I craft the story so that it sounds like I know what I'm doing. When sometimes I just, I, especially at this point in my life, I just don't know what I'm doing. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. I, 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 it's, it's interesting because it's, conf, you know, it's confirming what we're saying um, and, and illuminating it a little bit further and illustrating it rather the, yeah. It, so, so Shakespeare apparently, you know, is, gets it. It's like, he's smart. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Matt, I think um, I've talked about this. I think when we did Twelfth Night, but it's really important to me, so I'll repeat it. So in Shakespeare's career, he writes these tragedies, these tragedies that I love that we mentioned during the first episode. Um, so Hamlet, Macbeth, Lear, Coriolanus, uh, Othello. And I've noticed something um, in his earlier works as compared with these works. In his earlier works, I'm thinking of something like Richard II and Richard III. Even when the characters are, are pursuing really almost kind of demonic ends, like Richard III, per, I mean, he just is out for destruction so that he can get the crown. He, he says it all in the opening monologue of Richard III. His speech is very, very rational. It kind of builds on syllogisms to a conclusion. And it's easy to follow. For Shakespeare, it's easy to follow. Now, with Hamlet and with Lear especially, there is this, there are moments in those play where Shakespeare seems to be trying to convey like the revenge of the subconscious on this logical self. So um, we see it everywhere in the Lear scenes during Act Three. It's he lurches all over the place in his speech. He lurches from cursing nature to bemoaning the way that Goneril and Reagan treated him to expressing regret about Cordelia back to nature. And he's just all over the place. And it reminds me a little bit of Hamlet's opening monologue. Um, oh, that this too, too solid flesh would melt, thaw, and resolve itself into a dew. Deeper into that monologue, 
he gets hooked. It's almost like it invades him, this obsession that his uncle, now he doesn't know that his uncle is a murderer yet, that his uncle married with his mother, but three months dead. Yay, not even three. So his, his father had not even been dead for three months, and his uncle comes in, marries his mother, and puts himself on the throne. And Hamlet, you can tell, it's almost like something inside of him just erupts forth. And I think he says, he makes references to the three months, I think four different times. And it seems to just come out of, out of nowhere. Um, and I, I, it's, I don't want to overstate it, but it seems like Shakespeare has been able to put pen to this thing that 20th century century writers seem to be much more at home with, this notion that the stream of consciousness of our minds can be conveyed in literature. Hmm. So I just read um, Aristophanes' The Clouds over the weekend. Yeah. And it's my first time reading actually because, well, because I've always been, I've always been, unwilling to read Aristophanes because I know what he does to Socrates. Because he's going to mock Socrates, I know, I know. Yeah, therefore I hate him, so. <laughs> right, no, I know exactly uh, what you mean. But, I, but my daughter was reading it for class and she wanted to talk about it, so she convinced me to, well, she browbeat me into reading it. Um, <laughs> and I love it. And I am actually, I just ordered the entire, the complete works of Aristophanes. Now I want to read them all. Um, they're so good. Um, but and that's a different conversation as to why I think so. But anyways, in, in the clouds, there's, there's, um, about two thirds of the way through, there's a, there's a debate between the personified just speech and the personified unjust speech where the Uh. two of them are debating each other or having this dialogue with each other in order to convince the guy who's listening to go to school to study, but to pick which one he's going to study. Am I going to learn just speech or am I going to learn unjust speech? Yeah. And, and it's the same thing, right? Unjust speech has this, you know, this series of logical arguments. Um, And then, then the student chooses unjust speech and then he comes home from school and he starts using that same kind of logic to defeat his father um, in this, you know, the discussion that they're having and, and eventually the, the father gets to this point where, where, and the father has been an awful character. I mean, the whole play awful, right? Everybody hates him. And, and at the end, the father, like his, what, you know, what you've, what you're calling the stream of consciousness, but his kind of bearing of his soul is, Mm -hmm. is, is he prays to the gods in, in, in a kind of repentance, but also in a kind of like, why did you do this to me? And they said, and they said, because you were, you were chasing evil. And he says, why didn't you tell me that? And they said, Uh we couldn't, we had to show you. And so we Uh. we put you through all of this. We had to show it to you. Um, And then, and then, and then from, from out of that. So there's this kind of moment of repentance where he says, you know, okay, now I see I was wrong. But then his, his reaction is I, cause he's incapable of defeating the unjust speech of his son. His son keeps winning all the arguments. And mm. so he, and that's when he, he decides he has to go and, and do something about it. And, and it's a physical reaction or a physical response. Like it's like, it's like in, in Paralandra when, um, 
the guy cannot defeat the Satan character. I can't remember their names now, but you know, he's trying to help that woman who's the Eve character on, on Venus. Um, you know, you, are you familiar with Paralandra? No, I haven't read oh, it. Okay, okay. So there's, so there's this Eve character and she's being, she's going through the temptation, like um, on, on Venus, it's their version of our garden of Eden. And, but she, yes. she's at the point in time where she's still, she's just being tempted and the human character shows up and he sees this happening. And so he enters into a dialogue with the, 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 the Satan character, the tempter. And it's an, it, and it's extended dialogue. They go on and on back and forth, back and forth, back and forth until finally he realizes I can't win. So I have to kill him. The only thing I can do is kill this, uh-huh. kill this serpent. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. It's, it's kind of like that, right? Like, 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 I, I don't know, like, like logic is good and it's important, but right. at some point there's just, truth is just truth, right? And, yeah. and sometimes it requires a different kind of response. I don't know. I mean, First Corinthians 13, the famous passage that get, gets read at weddings, right. which doesn't really seem to have that much to do with romantic love, certainly some, but it's more just the position of the Christian believer is that there's, there, there can be moments where we have to make a choice between truth and love. And Paul says, of these in the hierarchy of goods, love is higher. Hmm. That to me is like one of the most reassuring passages in the world, because how many times do you come up against, or ha- I mean, I'll speak for myself. How many times have I been the kind of um, interlocutor who wants to pursue truth through logical means? And especially as a younger man would just do much more harm than, than good would just injure people. Mm. And I, I could kind of justify it to myself, speaking of like telling ourselves stories, I could justify it to myself and that I was just after the truth. I just, you know, I'm just at the truth and having done so much harm to people that I care about under the banner of pursuing truth. I realize I take so much comfort in first Corinthians 13. The highest of these is truth. Uh, excuse me. The highest of these is love and oh, truth Freudian without love. Slip. Was it, that a Freudian it, slip? Well, maybe it was. <laughs> um, yeah. Like, you know, truth without love is it's a claim symbol. It's this irritant, Yeah. which is not to say that it should not be pursued, but it's, I mean, we all know, it, especially <laughs> if you spend a lot of time around, 12 year old or 13 year old boys that is i think just developmentally this kind of time in a young man's life where you discover the like kind of terrifying power of making consistent arguments and you kind of think man i now that i am armed i can go take on the world mm-hmm. and everybody who disagrees with me get out of my way I will show you. Right. My friend Jonathan was was frequent of saying, um, no person in the history of the world has ever defeated a 12-year-old boy in like a game of logic. <laughs> and I think there's a lot of truth to that. Like, you know, yeah. it's just it's that time and like it's be good for something for 
some parents that are out there to hear and developmentally 12 and 13 for a boy that you're just being subjected to this newly discovered weapon called logic. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you probably aren't going to win. I mean, of course, right. Of course, of course you're like, you're older, you have, you have more life experience. You, you can, win, but that's not how it's going to be perceived by the young man. No. And and which is often why parents have to resort, even with 12 and 13 year old boys to, because I said so. And yeah. that, that's, that's like yeah, in, right. In right. That's like saying, I'm just going to kill him. I can't win. So I'm just going to kill him. <laughs> it's the same kind of, thing, right. Right? I can't win with this kid. He's got this weapon. He's relentless. I'm just going to, I'm just going to end it with my power. Right. I'm going to say, because I said so or else. And, and the boy's response is, oh, a cheap resort to authority. You are not playing according to the game. <laughs> right. You know, I mean, like, and right, yet I right. can. So <laughs> and yet, right. And yet I can. Exactly. And yet I can. Yeah. There there's, um, well, two points, two notes. So on, on the first part, just about that distinction between truth and love, um, or the, or the hierarchy there, yeah. uh, there, there, um, I'm pretty sure it's from the book Discerning the Mystery by Andrew Louth. I th- yeah, right. I think in there he says, and I want to make sure I don't know if I'm going to get the names of the two categories correct, or, or even if I agree with the names, but I but I agree with the categories. He says that rhetoric is knowing how to speak the truth. Eloquence is knowing how to speak the truth at the right time. Mm. And, and, and then his, you know, as he develops that, that's his point, right? That, that just because something's true doesn't mean it has to be said to, you know, any, per, any particular person in any particular situation, right? Sometimes, yes. sometimes we need to wait, we need to hold back, some, we need to um, soften it, we need to, we need to say it through parable, you know, whatever, there's different things, you know, you, you don't, not everything has to be said just because it's true. And then, and then the second point on, on the the 12 year old boy thing was um, that that's actually always made me kind of hesitant to teach formal debate uh, because it it becomes weaponized. And I've noticed, um, I've noticed that in the Republic, Socrates makes an argument for not teaching students the dialectic until they're 30 years old. Oh, for wow. that very reason, because it becomes weaponized and they use it for the sake of winning rather than for the sake of truth. Yeah. Yeah. Boy, there's a lot of, there's a lot of wisdom in that. I mean, when I look back at my life, we're veering away from Lear a little bit. We'll get back to a it. Bit. When I look at my own life, I think, would it have been better for me to not learn rhetoric and logic when I was 12 because of just like you said, I weaponized it. It was just like almost in my being to weaponize it. And I think, you know, even still, despite the destruction, I learned it. And I also learned by seeing its effects, how, how to best use it. And that it needs to be tempered by, that it needs to be tempered by love. Yeah, And I think I kind of learned that more quickly. I mean, if I was 30, would I just automatically know that? Uh, maybe, maybe I would have, but I kind of, I hate to pick a fight with Socrates, whom I love, just, just um, but I wonder if it's almost bottom. better, like, 
I almost better. I almost wonder if it's better to just hand the weapon to the boy, knowing that harm is inevitable, but knowing that if he is capable of seeing the harm that he does, he will more quickly understand the principle behind First Corinthians thirteen. Yeah. Well, so on the one hand, you could say that the 30-year-old is more capable of rightly ordering the hierarchy. Right. Um, and so we wait for the 30-year-old. Or, which is I, I think is a, is a plausible solution. But then again, how many of us are still educating kids when they're 30 years old? Uh, yeah, it's right. Like we lose them at that point. So you kind of, <laughs> almost the latest that we could, and you know, in our in our the, the way our society works, the, kind of the latest you could wait till is you know eighteen or nineteen. Well, I guess if you were if you had them through college, you know, twenty two or twenty one, um, which you know Socrates would argue is still too young. But but so if you did it at that you know anywhere from twelve to twenty one, then then you you have to do it the way you just said. You have to do it knowing that yeah, I am going to I'm I'm. I'm creating a monster and I'm turning myself in and, and everybody around this person into a victim <laughs> and yeah. it's worth it, but I have to be aware of that in order to, yeah. in order to try to, you know, help it along um, and be careful with it as much as possible. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Matt, I, I'd like to talk about uh, act three and I think it's scene six. It's Gloucester being accused in his own castle of betraying Reagan and Goneril. And they, they strap him down. They put him in a chair. Seven. And they take his eyes out, Matt. Yeah. Seven? I think so. Yeah. They take his eyes out. <laughs> yeah. So. When you do you remember what you thought when you first encountered that scene in Lear? So well, so I can't remember if this made it into the first episode or if it was in that that extended conversation we had that was supposed to be the first episode that wasn't the first episode. Oh right, um, right, right. But I think I told you in one of those conversations that the very first time I read Lear, I I it was so, it was so, you know, quick and, and of a read and difficult to read. And, um, that if you had asked me in the time between that reading and, and the reading I did for this one, for the show, which is my second reading, yeah. um, I would have told you that the, the play ended with Lear being blinded. And really, because I remember this scene being about Lear, not Gloucester for, for some reason at back then. So um, but, but I, but I didn't remember, oddly enough, I didn't remember how he was blinded. I only remember that he was blinded. Yeah. So when yeah. I read it this time and I was like, and it, so, so now all of a sudden it, it's like, it's, it, it was, it was still just a big surprise to me. Right. Because I didn't expect the blinding to happen the way that it did. But then I was even more surprised mm -hmm. to discover that it was Gloucester that it happened to. Um, mm -hmm. and Gloucester just seems to be just this awful pawn in the whole thing right like he's right. being abused by everybody around him right i mean his you know obviously his bastard son um turns him against his own son but then his bastard son turns him 
turns the, you know, the daughters and the, the Dukes against him. And, and then, but, but even just before this, the daughters and the Dukes have basically, you know, imprisoned him in his own home, um, forced him to abandon his, his allegiance to the King, you know, to Lear and to, to not offer him any help and then made their home, his home, their home. Um, you know, that's his complaint, right? When he shows up at the hovel right. that are uh, with Lear and, and then this happens where they capture him and, and they, and then they, they, the, the gouge out his eye, the jelly, I think he, I think. Out vile jelly. Out vile jelly. Ah, it's awful. So the thing, one thing that occurred to me is, is the parallels here with Oedipus, right? So Oedipus, yeah. Oedipus kills his father. Gloucester kills his son. Metaphorically, kills his son. Okay. Okay. Um. Um. His good son. Oedipus yeah. marries his mother. Mm-hmm. Gloucester marries his bastard son. You know, marries himself to to him. Oh yeah, him, yeah. Right. And yeah. then, and then, Oedipus discovers what has happened and gouges out his eyes. Gloucester discovers what has happened, and then has his eyes gouged out. Uh huh. Um, it's pretty. It's pretty awful. Shakespeare, given the great classical education that he had, would have been really familiar with the Oedipus story, and. Yeah, I, I wonder if it was not if it was not in the forefront of his mind. Maybe it was jangling around in the right. know, the back of his mind somehow. I this scene is so disturbing. It's so hard. I mean, it's just watching a dumpster fire. It's not a dumpster fire. That's the wrong metaphor. It's just watching a terrible, terrible, violent act. And you kind of like having seen this scene conveyed on the stage or in a movie version, you know, several times, every time I just want to close my eyes. And every time I find myself kind of peeking sideways, cause I like have to watch this accident on the side of the road. Yeah. Um, they, there is a, I'm just thinking about this, Matt, like a staged version of the play. How are you going to do this? Yeah. You know, like, how are you going to do just the actual rudiments of gouging a man's eyes out on the stage? How are you going to do it? And it's interesting how traditions form in the theater. And I think this is one of those traditions of Shakespeare performance that what happens, I'm like kind of like pulling the, the curtain back a little bit for people who have not seen um, a performance of the play. If you do want to go see a performance of the play and you don't want to know how they do it, fast forward for, I don't know, three minutes. Um, the way that it's typically done is the character Gloucester is forced into his seat with his back to the audience. So we can't fully see what's happening. Mm. And then the characters that actually gouge out the eyes. And I think you could read it as... Um, I think it is, it has to be Reagan for the second eye. And I think the first eye is typically 
uh, her husband is at Cornwall. Cornwall. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what you typically do is, this is so disgusting. Why am I talking about this? You, the character that like the eyes Gloucester has a grape up his sleeve and squeezes the grape till it pops, Mm. which is terrifyingly realistic. I mean, it's just so disgusting. Okay, let's let's move on from that conversation. Uh, yeah, look at how those- look at how cavalier they are. Oh, I right? know. So, so, so Cornwall puts out Gloucester's eye. Reagan's response is, "One side will mock another; the other two. Uh huh. And then. Then, then, of course, you have this interlude, I guess, where the servant tries to stop them. Uh-huh. And then, and then the servant pulls out a sword, and Cornwall pulls out a sword, and they're about to, or maybe the servant doesn't pull out a sword. I think the servant just, the, the servant just says something that they don't like. He says, if you did wear a beard upon your chin, I'd shake it on this quarrel. And then Cornwall says, my villain, and draws out a sword to fight. Yeah. And, and then Reagan says, give me thy sword, a peasant mm. stand up thus. And then the stage direction says, she takes a sword and runs at him behind. Oh, she stabs yeah. him in the back. Yeah. For trying to save Gloucester's second eye. As bad as it gets. Then of course he's slain. And, and then the lines before the ones, can I just back up before you yeah, go on yeah, Matt? No, the lines fine. from the servant, uh, before the ones, um, if you did wear a beard upon this chin, I'd shake it to be coral. Here are the lines from the servant. Hold your hand, my Lord. I have served you ever since I was a child, but better service have I never done you than now to bid you hold. <laughs> if you did wear a beard upon your chin, I'd shake it on this quarrel. So not only does she kill him, stab him in the back, literally, but she's also, she's stabbing a good man in the back, Mm -hmm. a faithful servant who has now broken his obedience because what his master is about to do is so wrong. And she stabs him in the back. So I think, yeah, cavalier is the right word. And we're getting into the sisters and Cornwall are, it's getting demonic. Right. It's getting really, really dark. Right. Yeah. Cause, cause then she, he dies first. The first servant dies. And then Cornwall says about Gloucester's eye, lest it see more prevent it out. And then uh-huh. what you like quoted out vile jelly puts out Gloucester's mm-hmm. other eye. Then he asks Gloucester, where is thy luster now? I know. Dude, the the cruelty. Uh-huh. The cruelty. And then Gloucester responds all dark and comfortless. And Reagan replies, or he and then asks, Where's my son, Edmund? And then Reagan says, mm-hmm. Out treacherous villain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gloucester's the treacherous villain here. Not Cornwall, not Reagan. Right, Gloucester's right, right, right. Treacherous villain. And and Gloucester's response, oh, my follies, then Edgar was abused. Kind gods forgive him. Kind gods forgive him that and prosper him. The moment that his eyes are out, 
is the moment he sees. Yes. Yeah, it, she, it doesn't even take any convincing, right? In the in the best, yeah. in, the, in the right way, right? Sometimes people yeah. aren't convinced and they just do the wrong thing. But here, she says, you're calling on, or thou callest on him that hates thee. It was he that made the overture of thy treasons to us, who is too good to pity thee. And Gloucester yeah. immediately, immediately knows the truth. Mm-hmm. Blinded, mm-hmm. physically blinded, now immediately perceives truth. Oh, my follies. Then Edgar was abused. Mine, mine says, kind gods, forgive me that and prosper. Oh, him. really? So he's asking. Oh, I misread it, Matt. I misread it. Yeah. Oh, okay. Because it works either way. It just is interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I just misread it. Um, We've been going for an hour. Maybe let's start to look forward a little bit to, to act four. I think it might be nice to have a little hope at the end of act three, which I mean, a really... I use the word apocalyptic. It really does feel like the apocalypse has landed when, when good people, faithful servants are basically cut down in 30 seconds for trying to stand up for what the the world is just upside down at this point. It's upside down. It's madness. Um, In scene four, we will see act Edgar, I'm sorry, act four, see, we will see Edgar and his father reunioned. And uh, it's one of the most delightful scenes in Shakespeare's canon. Uh, and there's a particular line that references a, or excuse me, that, that Wendell Berry named a book for. And I wonder if I should say anything more beyond that. I, I won't say anything more beyond that. It might be fun if people listen to this and can post on the Facebook page what that line is. You'll get special close reads bonus points. This will, this will teach you how to close read. Right. This will teach you how to close read. Somebody's going to go right. on Wikipedia, get a list of every book that he's ever written. <laughs> so they can make yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What if it's one they haven't read? They haven't heard of well, so here's the amazing thing about apocalypses. I think it's apocalypse eye. Ap- ap- apocalypse eye. <laughs> um, I see you did there. I gouged out eye. Out violent. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, the uh, in an apocalypse, what you what what we see, what we often see, um, perhaps always see, are martyrdoms, mm-hmm. and we see. Um, people standing up for the truth Mm. and, and for love Mm. for God and neighbor, whatever. And, Mm -hmm. um, in ways that we don't necessarily see them doing that pre, you know, before, before the apocalypse. Um, but we also see them becoming more aware, self-aware or aware of, you know, realities and truth that, that they weren't willing to, think about commit themselves to before. Right. Um, yeah. And, 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 and those things like having an apocalypse in the middle of the play allows those things to come to light. And then those things become kind of those vehicles for, um, for the end, right. To get us to the end. And, yes. and I think we see that in this apocalypse, right. We see, we see um, Edgar and Lear being able to speak truths that, Mm-hmm. that 
but they might not have, that they haven't done before this. Um, we see, you know, Gloucester come into the realization of truth. We see the first servant standing up for what's right. And for, 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 well, just as you said, we see a good man and we see him get martyred. Um, yeah. I mean, to put it in apocalyptic terminology, right? Right. Um, and, and, and that like up until this point, with the exception maybe of Kent, I don't think that I would have thought there's anybody in this story who would be willing to do that. Or, and, right. or Cordelia. Cordelia, maybe Kent, probably Kent. Uh-huh. And, uh-huh. and then that's it. And then out of nowhere, from the household of Gloucester, uh, but no, no, she, he's not. He's the, he's, he says that he's cornwall's the or reagan cornwall servant. right yeah, the servants are reagan yeah, cornwall. yeah so out of out of their household where you would least expect it you have this man come forward and and do probably one of the the greatest kindnesses yeah um those, and those are all those are all hopeful for me right just from within this play or within this act there are these moments of hope that that i think can kind of carry me into Get me into act four like like it's possible that without those the the eye scene the gouging out of the eyes could have ended it for me yeah no i mean i mean like you i'm like one of those people that turn away and then peek so i probably would have kept reading it anyways but but if if you're listening and you get to that scene and you think i can't go on i can't go on i can't go this is awful i cannot read this story um, you know, maybe, maybe these, these moments of hope from within that act right. can help carry you through to the last, such the a last great point. Yeah, it's such a great point. And I, so, so can I ask you a question then about, about Please. the hope? Cause in act two, you, you had said that, um, that you were, you were kind of at your low as far as sympathizing with Lear. Yeah. And I had said that I was, that I was, I was, it was, I was ascending in my sympathy for, mm-hmm, for Lear mm-hmm. with act two. What, how, where, where does act three put you? I'm ascending now. You're ascending now. Okay. Yeah, I am. I mean, yeah, I, and it's funny how quickly after Lear gets off the heath, which I think, when he's at the Heath, I think that is him at his, at, the hubris is at its maximum tilt right then. I mean, taking on nature. And then it, for me, after that, I just start having so much affection for him and so much sympathy for him. And it continues, it continues throughout the play. Yeah. As we move forward to act five. I don't, so, so there's, there's, you know, on the Heath, um, well, kind of one of the key, a key point for me is actually when he's talking to Edgar and so everybody's outside in the storm and everybody keeps saying, go inside, go inside, go inside, go inside. Uh-huh. And Lear is ignoring them and staying outside. Uh-huh. And then he, I can't, I'm trying to find it now and I can't find the line, but there's a line in there where he says to, 
he he sees Edgar and says, "Let's go in. You can't. You shouldn't be out here in this storm." Mm. Um, uh, that's a bad paraphrase, but it's something like that. Right. And then everybody's right. like, "Yes, finally, okay, good. Let's go in." And and then I think it's after that when they have the trial, um, the mock trial of the daughters, right? Right. And, right. But but there's this moment where Lear turns outside of it, turns away from himself. Yes. And that that scene is I think that's a pretty powerful scene. And it's and it's yes. like this really short one-line thing, like, all right, let's go in. It, yeah, uh-huh. this is bad for you. But it's but all of a sudden he's concerned with somebody else. Yes. Oh my gosh, it's so right. It's such a powerful moment. And I can't find it. I'm so sorry. <laughs> but you're right. I mean, it's it's a, it's a snippet in the overall play, but I see it the exact same way, Matt. It's this, he is taking his eye off his own miseries and the perceived injustices that have been done to him. And he turns toward another and therein lies like his salvation. I don't mean capital S, but his reprieve from his sufferings I almost, I think you could almost just stick a pin in that line as the beginning. Yeah. I remember when I was probably 16 or 17, I was just really depressed. And I went to my dad and I said something to the effect of, you know, I just feel like my life just doesn't matter. You know, I wasn't terribly eloquent about it, but I just didn't, I, I just felt like, you know, I felt misunderstood. I felt like my life was of no importance. And my dad said, well, that's the best time to start thinking about someone else and how you can serve and be good to them because it takes your eye off yourself and it puts your eye on them. And I mean, he didn't say this, but therein lies the path of salvation. And I remember being so frustrated at that response because I knew it was true and I just didn't want to do it. Uh-huh. You know, there's some, there's a pleasure and kind of a short-term pleasure in wallowing in your own misery. And my dad was basically saying, well, you can keep doing that. And there's a modicum of, um, I won't call it joy, but pleasure that you can get from that. Or you can start climbing your way out by paying attention and caring for other people and you'll, you'll, and he was right. Mm. The times that I did that, there was this, there's a sort of levity of being that was so uncommon to me when I was 16, 17 years old. And I see Lear is very much in that same situation. Just there's a, there's, he begins to step upon that ladder out of the mire yeah. when he cares for poor Tom. I, I think it's, I think it's scene four, line 102. Oh, right. Because Edgar gives this really great speech about what kind of person he is. And he names all these sins that he's guilty of. And we don't know if he really means himself or Tom. But then he then he says toward in the second half of it, he's like, it's like, it's like advice. It's keep thy foot out of brothels, thy hand out of plackets, thy pen from lenders books, and defy the foul fiend. Still through the hawthorn blows the cold wind. Says suum mun nani dolphin my boy boy sessa let him trot by. So there's back to the madness stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And Lear says, "Thou wert better in a grave than to answer with thy uncovered body this extremity of the skies." And I th- I think that's his saying. 
you should, I, I think this is where I, where I, where it's stuck in my head that he's saying you shouldn't be out here. Mm. Then, then skip down a little bit. And he says, thou art the thing itself. Unaccommodated man is no more, but such a poor bare forked animal as thou art off, off you lendings come unbutton here. And, and now he's, they're getting out of their wet clothes. I think, right. Is what's going on there. I think so. Um, and so I, th- I think that's the passage I was thinking of. If there's another one that's better, um, you know, somebody post it or if you find it. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody post it. But I think that's where I was, where I saw it. So, so the only difference I think at this point is that I read the storm a little bit differently. I, like I, how do you read it? Well, I don't, I don't read him as, as trying to take on the storm. Like, like he's going to defeat it. But more mm-hmm. like, more like, give me, give me what you've got. It's almost, I, I read it like he's saying, I deserve this. I deserve this. So batter, batter. Uh, oh, yeah. Now, but the, my, the problem with my interpretation is the gentleman in, in act three, scene one, when Kent comes in and he, he comes upon this gentleman or he's with this gentleman. And, and he says, where Kent says, where's the king? And the gentleman says, contending with the fretful elements, bids the wind blow the earth into the sea or swell the curled waters above the main that things might change or cease. Tears his white hair, which the impetuous blasts with eyeless rage, catch in their fury and make nothing of, strives in his, this is kind of a key phrase, strives in his little world of man to outscorn the to and fro mm-hmm. conflicting wind and rain. This night, wherein the cub-drawn bear would couch, the lion and the belly-pinched wolf keep their fur dry, unbonneted he runs and bids what will take off. Uh-huh. So the gentleman's interpretation is he's an idiot doing what not even animals would do. And he's going out there yes. trying to contend with the wind and the storms. And like he's like he's so powerful a king that he can defeat the elements. Yes. But when I read Lear's lines, where Lear is talking to the winds and the rain, he seems to be begging them to punish him. Yeah. Right? Like in the beginning of scene two, blow winds and crack your cheeks, rage, blow, you cataracts and hurricanoes, spout till you have drenched our steeples, drowned the cocks, you sulfurous and thought executing fires, vaunt couriers of oak cleaving thunderbolts, singe my white head. And thou all shaking thunder strike flat the thick rotundity of the world. Crack nature's molds, all Germans spill at once, that makes ingrateful man. Um... And he seems to be, he, well, I, I wrote a note there. Is he asking for justice? Is he asking nature to give him justice? Uh, the elements to give him justice. <laughs> Later, he refer, he tells them, here I stand, your slave, a poor, infirm, weak, and despised old man. But then he says, but yet I call you servile uh-huh. ministers that will with two pernicious daughters join your high engendered battles against a head so old and white as this. So, it's like he's, <coughs> I'm so sorry, excuse me. It's like he's both, he's both asking them to, asking the elements to give him what he, what he's owed, what he deserves, but at the same time saying, and, and yeah, you're doing just to me what my daughters did. You're joining forces with them. Shouldn't that have been enough? I don't know. <laughs> it's um, Maybe it's Matt, maybe there's, 
mean, we've noticed this. I don't want to call it equivocation, but we've noticed these characters are capable of both being harmed and harming at the same time. Mm-hmm. And so maybe a better way of reading act three, scene two, than the one that I have put forward, which is just him raging into the storm. Maybe a better reading is a, some sort of a combination of he does feel like he has been abused and has been um, mistreated and he wants vengeance for that. Yet at the same time, he also wants to kind of like suffer the purging fire of nature, as it were, and yeah. be kind of purified as you're proposing. Maybe it's, maybe it's some level of both. I'd be very happy with that. Yeah, it, w- that's an interesting proposal. I mean, that's a, an interesting way of reading it. And I think I think perhaps it's the right way. Um, the, you know, at, at times he seems to be, he seems to be, you know, the one and then the other. Um, the, you know, the gentleman interprets him one particular way, it seems. Um, uh-huh. But then, but then the fool you know, seems to kind of go maybe both ways. I don't know. I'd have to read his lines a little bit more closely. Um, there is, there is this, this interesting interplay where, where it's like on the one hand, and maybe it's part of his senility, part of its madness, part of the grief, the suffering, the internalization, you know, the internalizing of things in his mind. Mm-hmm. But on the one hand, it's like, my daughters did this and it's awful and I'm suffering and it's, he's kind of, you know, making himself into a victim. Um, yes. On the other hand, it's, it's, I deserve this, but it's still, it's, it's all about him in both situations, right? It's my daughters did this and I deserve it. Yeah. I mean, my daughters did this and I don't deserve it. It's do this to me because I deserve it until we get to that moment where it's, this Edgar, I need to look out for this Edgar guy or this Tom. I need to look out for the philosopher. He calls him. Right. Right. Um, And then it's, it's no longer on him. So, so there's this kind of transition from where, so I see, I guess I see the transition like beginning when he turns from my daughter did this and I don't deserve it to, Mm -hmm. I do deserve it. Even if he's, even if he's flipping back and forth between the two, which I think is maybe what you're suggesting. And then, um, but then the real shift comes seems to come when he, when he starts caring about Edgar. Yeah. And the others around him. Um, and then he finally is willing to sleep. That's when he, uh, yeah, that's yeah. Perhaps maybe that, maybe that's his first time sleeping. I mean, if he's, if he's carousing with the nights all those other times. Yeah. 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 First real sleep. Boy, I like what you're putting forward, Matt. I think it's, I mean, I think it's a better reading than the one that I've kind of entered that, that crazy monologue, blow wind, crack your cheeks. I've read it as, as just rage and defiance, but I think yours is a lot more subtle and sophisticated and it kind of suits in previous close reads, David and Angelina and I have talked about that in many narratives, there's a midway point where the main character changes. So to use a quick and dirty example, in Casablanca, the movie, 
Rick goes from this very jaded character, this cynical kind of self-protective yeah, character yeah. who's been who's been hurt to a character that despite his pain is going to re-engage in the war against the Nazis. Right. Happens over and over in stories. We could come up with some if we had a little time. And I wonder if something similar might be happening here. Lear, having been a force of tyrannical destruction for the first two acts, now, maybe even in this specific monologue, is beginning that turn. He's beginning a turn to uh, recognizing his own humanity, that he's not just a king. He's turning to recognizing the humanity in others in Tom Edgar, Mm -hmm. uh, he begins to kind of recognize his own misdeeds and his treatment of Cordelia and just accepting them. So (laughs) your interpretation like really suits that pattern that I've seen in the structure of plays and in narratives that this is a turning moment. He, so, so a a couple of things, I think he also kind of has a Job like response Where it's like, so like he says, I am a man more sinned against than sinning. Um, which, which, you know, whether he's right or not, and, 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 and whether he means to imply that he's not done any sinning, I, the line, the the language doesn't necessarily require that, right? He did Mm -hmm. more Mm -hmm. sinned against than, than sinning, but at least leaves room that he's admitting he's a sinner or that he sins. Um, but, but there also seems to be this kind of Job-like response of, like earlier he says, I will be the pattern of all patience. I will say nothing. And then he sits. Uh, <laughs> yeah. There's, there's, there might be a sense in which he's like Job. He's like, okay, all this stuff is happening. And I just need to wait until I can have my, my consultation with God. Um, yeah. I, the way Job said it, right? What? Yeah. But, but um, the you know, so he has to wait for the gods or whatever. Then, but then there's this moment where he says, "The art of our necessities is strange and can make vile things precious." But he, he was talking about the cold and the storm, right? Um, mm-hmm. And the the necessities created by it makes vile things precious, and it's like he's 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 realizing and he says this right after saying my wits begin to turn mm-hmm. and then he says i am cold myself where is this straw my fellow the art of our necessities is strange and can make vile things precious um and then, then not that he says all right let's go to the hovel and and you have you have this um this sense in which he's starting to become aware of his judgments Right. And how, and how, how yeah. the world around him affects his judgments. Uh-huh. Um, there's this change there. Right. And, but also there's two lines that are not his ones from, from Kent, I believe. Let me check. Yeah. Kent in scene one where Kent says in the midst of his speech to the gentleman, line 28, he says, 27 the or the hard rain which both of them have borne against the old kind king oh. and then and then in scene three in gloucester's second set of lines line 18 he says 
he's just, he's telling Edmund what he has to do. And he says, if I die for it, as no less is threatened to me, the king, my old master must be relieved. There is mm. a, there is a, there is a, a, a warmth and a tenderness that these two men feel toward Lear. Yeah. That, that makes me think what happened in act one is out of the ordinary. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like I, and, and, and watch, watch the, watch the way people talk about him for the next two acts. Um, that's, I think that might be the first time he's referred to as kind is in three, one. Um, but, it, but it comes up multiple, you know, a few more times or, or think words like that are used a few more times yeah. in the next two scene, two acts. And it's, there's, there's this, there's this, this, this thing, right? Like suddenly Kent says he's kind and then moments later, Lear starts being kind, mm-hmm. you know, like in that same night, right? Um, mm-hmm. It's, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. It's, interesting. I, it's funny that you bring this up, Matt. I was thinking the exact same thing as I went through act three. I thought, man, there is a backstory of real affection between Cordelia and Lear, between Kent and Lear, between Gloucester and Lear. And I was thinking what you just said there. He was a man that people both revered, but also loved. And it seems like they loved him with good reason. So what happened? It just makes the mystery of act one, scene one, his rage against Cordelia, all the more mysterious and all the more, all the more sad and tragic. Yeah. But the play never tells us how long his wife has been dead, does it? No. Because you know the story no. of you know the story of um, Ivan the Terrible. No. So, so apparently Ivan the Terrible was one of the greatest czars of Russia, kindest, happiest, most generous czars in all of Russia for the first half of his reign, and then his wife died, and he went mad. Wow, and 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 he was so awful in the second half of his reign that you know he earned the moniker the terrible. I'm the terrible. But the the fuller story is that he was actually a very very good ruler, very kind and generous ruler, until his wife died. Um, I I don't I mean I, I'm not saying that and therefore and therefore right, right, his right. wife died moments before you know Act One Scene One. I'm not saying that I don't know, but but I wonder if 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 you know we ought to see it as something like that or that something happened to drive him mad because you know like as you just said kent and uh cordelia and gloucester especially the three of them and the the fool come on this fool has a weird loyalty to him oh he does right he does and it seemed like lear had earned it Mm -hmm. you know one other historical figure like Ivan the Terrible, I finished about three months ago Woodrow Wilson's biography. So Wilson, just to remind listeners, was the president during World War I and the Treaty of Versailles. And by all counts, he was a very, he was a cold man and people saw him as being very wooden. But um, to those who knew him well, he, they, he had this other side of him. He was tr- tremendously warm, um, like really romantic. He lost his first wife 
uh, a year into his first term and married again a year later. And he, his love letters to his wives are like pure poetry. They are gorgeous. (laughs) They're gorgeous. After the Treaty of Versailles, it's believed that he had a stroke. Well, some people believe that he had multiple strokes. And people noticed that his temperament started changing drastically. And he became a pretty, he became a very mean person late in his life, not to everybody. But I have, I have hypothesized that about Lear. Like you were th- saying, gosh, oh, right. maybe, it's, maybe he lost his wife. And I thought, maybe Lear has had a, a minor stroke or a series of minor strokes or something like that. Obviously, we're both speculating. It's sure. kind of fun speculation. It um, hey, that way lies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, right, right. Madness that way lies in, in too much speculation. Um, we should put a caboose at the end of this train. Yeah. Because we've been going for about an hour and 20. I have one closing thought. Okay. Uh it's actually just a very short story. I was at New College Franklin, which has supported this show in the past. Yeah. And I spent a week with their professors and students, and it was terrific. The people who volunteered um, their hospitality so I could stay with them listened to Close Reads. I had not met them before, but they're Close Reads fans. So <laughs> I come home from being, you know, visiting the college one evening and I arrive at Andy and Katie's house and Katie was joking around about hosting a celebrity. We were both laughing because it was just a funny thing to say. So I I walk in the front door and I hear someone's voice in the kitchen and it sounds like my voice and Katie is listening to close reads and it was us. And as soon as I walked in, I said, Hey, Katie, she said, Oh no. I'm so embarrassed. This is so embarrassing. Like, <laughs> and I just thought I just have to give a shout out to Katie and Andy, both for the hospitality, but also that was just a fun little, that was a fun little event. That's awesome. Do you have a closing thought, Matt? No, I don't, I don't know. I think I said, I think I've said it. Um, I just, I, I have this, this aching suspicion that Shakespeare doesn't, make a whole lot of characters who he intends for us to to just say why they're wrong you know why they're the bad guy you know Uh um uh the the you know even even Macbeth, right like i yeah Macbeth is an awful human being in the end but but i i learned something by my about myself Uh uh-huh by 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 thinking look at the you know by by at least sympathizing or understanding the 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 pull of power that it had over him the sway of power yeah you know, the sway of the promise of power that had that it had yeah. over him um that you know make that makes me you know i, I it makes me feel pity for him in a sense, you know, I mean, I, yeah. I feel disgust toward his actions, but, um, but, but pity toward him as a human being, you know, made in the image of God. And, and even, even if he is just a fictional character, right. Yeah. Um, and, and I, I don't, I, I, I was talking to Andrew about this earlier today and Andrew's like, yeah, but what about Iago? 
And I was like, I don't know, oh, man. I need to reread that. It's a long one. time. Iago yeah. might be one guy where it's like, you're not supposed to think anything about him except that he's awful. Right. Um, so I don't know. But but I think but I think for the most part, that's pretty rare in Shakespeare. You know? Yeah. So um, I guess I, I guess I'm just saying I feel the need to defend my desire to to see the good in Lear. And that's that is uh-huh. that is it. That's my defense. <laughs> I th- I no I think that is a great observation. I mean and I think you're right. I think like it might be hard to find that in Iago that kind of those redeeming characteristics but even in someone even Richard the 3rd um Yeah, he might be another when one. When he but I can even have sympathy on him. Um he was knit together by dissembling nature. He has a club foot at least in Shakespeare's play. He has a club foot and he's hunched. Hmm. And it's part of the reason, you know, he, he has a great line. Um, when I halt by a, a pretty woman, she pays me no attention, but dogs bark at me. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think you can have sympathy yeah. with someone who is, well, you know, that, yeah. man, I can, it's what a, what a tremendous burden to carry, to be perceived as dis- deformed. Right. And he turns it, it becomes poison in his belly and he goes on his destructive rampage. But even Richard III and certainly Macbeth and certainly Lear, I think we can have tremendous sympathy with why they made those decisions that they ingested poison um, and they were done wrong, but they let it get the best of them. They dwelt on that trauma, that injury, and it became... um, it became poison in them and it ended up poisoning their whole being. Yeah. Or at least most of their being. I think, I think we'll see what happens with Lear at, at the end. Right. Right. Well, at least, at least we know that, um, that Cornwall doesn't gouge out his eyes. Yeah. Somebody else might gouge out his eyes, but it's not Cornwall. <laughs> right. 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 Hey, so, um, thanks everybody for joining us. I said, um, close reads. Thanks for joining us for, the plays the thing um these have been so much fun to do and i'm really looking forward to acts four acts five and the question and answer that will follow act five so for matt bianco i'm tim mcintosh thanks for tuning in to another episode of the plays the thing the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.